Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is about building a community of people who are interested in the applications of behavioral science to work in life. We do this by sharing our discussions with interesting and insightful guests on a variety of topics that involve why we do what we do. And they almost always turn out to be quite fun. Yeah, they, they pretty much do. In this episode, we spoke with Thomas Steenberg, Senior Professor of Business Administration and Senior Associate Dean at the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. Tom partnered with Mike Ahern. Hey, hey uh, Mike Ahern, we did an episode with him uh, back in June of 2018. Yes, Tim. Yes, yes, we did. <laughs> it was great. So, so Tom partnered with Mike Ahern on some groundbreaking research, which was recently published in the Harvard Business Review on how to help sales reps be more successful when they are asked to sell new products. Tom and Mike invested five years into gathering data from sales managers, salespeople, and even customers. The insights they gained were interesting and especially valuable for those working in sales leadership positions. One of their discoveries is that the best asset for a sales rep to have when it comes to selling new products is a learning mindset. Tom describes a learning mindset as one where the rep is naturally motivated to discover more about the client and their situation. As intuitive as that sounds, it's a lot less common than we imagine. It turns out that reps with a learning mindset spend more time discussing the market trends, the situations, and the specific needs of their customers before they start selling the new product. This deep investigation into each customer's situation helps reps become more successful in the long run. However, it also takes more time and reduces output while they're doing that investigation. Sales managers who are anxious to keep the numbers up from month to month may struggle with this. Tom highlighted some ways to work around this in the short term. Yeah, Tom also highlighted a big disconnect between sales reps and their customers and how they perceive the strengths of the reps. When rating this rep's strengths, it turns out that customers tended to rate sales reps very differently than the reps rated themselves. The only dimension that reps and customers agreed on was on the sales rep's product knowledge. We all know that introducing new products is a must for a company to grow, but it's also hard on the reps. It requires sales reps to be change agents within the organization as well as their own selling methods. These changes can cause significant emotional challenges, a component that has been undervalued by organizations in the past. We also talked about the importance of strategic account reps with their broader viewpoints and longer-term orientations and how they can be leaders in the new product introductions. Of course, we also discussed music and Tom's eclectic tastes. If you like what you hear in this episode, please take a moment before the end of today, that's today, really, today. You really mean today? I think so. I would love to see a whole bunch of reviews uh, short reviews go out today. Today. Not T tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Today. Yeah, and they can be short as a tweet. It goes a long way to help us in the ratings, and it means a lot to Tim. And, and you. Oh, oh and, and you. me. And me, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> also, if you're interested in talking with Kurt and me about the work that we do helping companies with sales compensation, sales incentive structures, and selecting the most motivational rewards, don't hesitate to start a conversation. Kirk can be reached on Twitter at, at @whatmotivates, and you can reach me at, at @thulahan. We'd love to help your organization improve your bottom line with a behavioral lens.
please sit back with a fine listening beverage and enjoy our conversation with Tom Steenberg. Welcome, Thomas Steenberg, to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it is our pleasure. We are excited about this. So, um, you know, we got introduced to you from Mike Michael Ahern, uh, who we had on, on a podcast earlier. But you guys just recently wrote an HBR article called How to Sell New Products, Focus on Learning and Not Performance. Uh, so we just thought it would be a good way to start. If you told us a little bit about some of the findings from that and what that article is saying. Yeah, the, I think the, the basic findings of, of the article are around um, what's different about selling new products from selling existing products. So really the thing that we were interested in was learning more about really new to the world products, not product line extensions. What are companies doing uh, differently? Okay. And, you know, so some of the some of the big picture stuff is that companies probably aren't doing a third of what they should be doing uh, in selling new products. Yeah. Uh, because really what happens uh, with new products is it's a very different sales process. Uh, different types of people excel within that process. And then organization structures need to be built to, to support people in this type of sale. And it's, you know, some of the surprising things for us were uh, really around how little companies were doing. And also, um, probably from a personal perspective, the thing that surprised me most is, is how much of a salesperson's emotions play into the sale and how it's very different than other, other, types, of, uh, other types of work that they do. Okay. Well, can you expand on that? So yeah. you're talking about the emotions and how they play into the sale. So specifically, how do those emotions play in in selling to a new product versus an existing or a product line extension? Yeah. So um, let's let's think about a normal salesperson's uh, life or, or what they what they normally do is that you might be meeting with a customer frequently. You might know them really well. Um, but if you don't have new products, you don't really have that much to talk about after mm. a while. So new products actually are this great, uh, this great opportunity in, in your mind because you think, wow, I can break through with a conversation. I have something new to talk about. It's going to ease the tedium. Um, and, and so as people approach the sale, this has a lot of it has two sorts of behaviors, let's say, that, that people exhibit. One is because they have something new to talk about. They actually just talk about the product itself. And it's almost like, you know, I just go run on and on about all the features and all the things, all the things that you don't normally do in selling a new product, in selling a normal product. Right. You do in selling a new product. And it's very counterproductive um, with the account. And, it's, and some of that is just excitement with, with the salesperson. They have something new to talk about. So there's this, this great old study done by Neil Rackham. Um, and what he showed is that when people are selling existing products, they actually ask many more questions about the client and what's going on in their business than they do when they're selling new products. When it's new products, it's all about, oh, I'm going to tell you about all the features and just go on and on about the, the product information, which, is, yeah. it, which doesn't work. <laughs> we know it doesn't work. But um, the excitement story gets the best of people. Yeah. So the so that excitement of having something new to talk about 
ends up actually detracting from talking more about the the need that the the customer might have or some of the background around that and they get right into talking features and buttons and whiz and bells and all that kind of stuff is that uh, yeah yeah exactly right and and if you uh look at other types of behaviors that often happen um when the reps go out to to sell a new product they don't discriminate amongst customers all that Wow. Um, and and so it's actually it's a it's a widely spread type of message. Okay. And so the excitement though actually turns into sort of um frustration or or people would describe a, about how they had the rug pulled out from under their feet later in the sale because a lot of times the customer really isn't all that interested in buying. And okay. so when, when we talked with customers about about new sales um, sometimes they talk about how basically they just want to know what the latest and greatest thing in the market is. And so they'll talk to anyone. They're actually super open to <laughs> talking to the salesperson at this point in time because they can learn something. So uh, a senior uh, vice president buyer that, that we talked to said, um, you know, I'll talk to anyone because I'm just looking for new ideas. <laughs> very rarely buy. You know, like, but I will talk to anyone because I I need to know what's happening in the industry. Yeah, but there are some things that uh, there are some aspects of of both the personality and the sales process that can make selling new products more effective. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. Uh, so 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 give us a couple of uh, in, insights uh, on on those fronts. Yes. Yeah, so um, behaviorally. Uh, one of the things that that turns out to be really effective when selling new products is somebody who has more of a learning mindset. Okay. So this, this is really hard in a sales organization. So if you if you think of, you know, how how we manage most salespeople, it's quarter to quarter, make your quota. Right. You know, there's there of places to work in a firm, it's probably the place that has the most focus on performance. Um, but the but the salespeople who are most effective at selling new products actually have more of a learning orientation. And uh, this has some negative consequences um, because early on, uh, when it, after a new product is launched, what the salesperson, the most effective salespeople do is they go and really learn in the account. And, and what that means is they spend more time meeting with cross-functional teams. They may spend more time in face-to-face -face selling, which new product sales require. And what happens to performance due to this investment in time is that it dips immediately after product launches. But these people in the long run, after they learn about how to sell in the account, they learn what the customer is really interested in, um, their performance goes to a higher level in the long run. So the investment is worth the time. Uh -huh. <laughs> we, we contrasted that with salespeople who had more of a performance orientation mindset. And what happened with these people, they're always focused on making numbers. So their performance didn't really dip in the short run. In fact, they're more likely to keep, you know, more focus on their existing product portfolio and less focus on the new product portfolio if they're selling both. But in the long run, what that meant is that their performance didn't rise to the same level. And, you know, from a managerial perspective, the only thing I can say is this is really tough. <laughs> yeah. You know, because what you're asking a manager to do is say, well, 
you know, forego some sales today and trust me, it'll happen in the long run. Um, and <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's a tough message, but so, so what it means from a managerial perspective, you really have to be dwelling in that earlier part where you, where you know, right after launch that sales are dipping, that the reps actually are out there learning and, and the spread, you know, spread knowledge at that point or work to find best practices. Right. And, and it's interesting, too, because we you think, at least in the companies that I've worked with, you, the new product launch is this opportunity to, to take that sales up to the next level. At least that's what you know, the executives are talking about in various different things. And, and the incentives around it are usually built around that quick start as well. And what you're saying is this is it's almost counterintuitive to say, well, actually, in the long run, that may have a slower uptake might lead to longer term success if you yeah. if you, d- you do that. Is that I'm not putting words yeah, in about that? Right. Right? I, I think a more focused effort around uh, a set of customers who are really willing to adopt uh, the, the new products and invest in in that sort of, of, of process are the ones that uh, ones that do best. And, and I think that you know, one way to think about it is we'll often talk about change management within a company and how difficult that is, you know, even to execute within your own company. Right. It, essentially, what we're asking salespeople to do here is act as a change agent within the customer site. And, and so what that means is I have to be more focused. I have to find the right customer, someone who's open to change. I have to think through the incentives of all the individual players at the at the uh, at the client site, anticipate the hurdles and the roadblocks, and and develop strategies to help the customer change. That's um, a it's a really tough job. Yeah. So the qualifying component of working with the the customers in order to qualify them and to get them. There's a lot more work going into that. And I know in the article you get, you talk about it's just that 32 percent more time face to face and 32 or 35 percent more time in meetings and various different things. So that whole process of getting to know that customer just is a lot longer and more intensive than what had been done for maybe a traditional or a, a existing product. Right. No, it's it's exactly right. Um, and, and for some of these products, again, we really wanted to study new to the world type of, of innovation. And what you're asking the customer to do is to change the way that they're doing business. Um, yeah. So that's a difficult. It's, everybody has trouble changing, so it's difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, <laughs> yeah. well, and I love the, the 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 story you told about the the customer who said, "I'll take any of those meetings because I want to learn what's new and and out there, but not necessarily with the intent to buy." And so, yeah, I want to do it. Yeah, they're, they're more like vampires. <laughs> than, <laughs> So when you think about that and you're like going as a salesperson, you're going, you're excited because, wow, I got all these new potential, you know, people that are wanting to talk to me. But the reality of it is they're, they're just out there searching for information, not really in that buying mode. So, yeah. yeah um, it, and that's exactly, you know, why they describe it as having the rug pulled out from under your feet. You know, it's like, you like suddenly my funnel is full. I have all of these opportunities. The world is rosy. And then you look, <laughs> Three months later, after you invested this time, and you're like, "Oh, wait a second here." <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
that's the worst thing on earth. Right, right. Yeah, and particularly for you know, salespeople typically they're you know, it's like, wow, I've just, I've just spent three months and and what do I have to show for it? So yeah. that, well, that, because that. the sales manager is going to be asking, what do you have to show for it? Right. Well, so uh, so when it comes to having this uh, you know very performance uh, orientation versus a learning orientation. Uh, you know, organizations need both, right? I mean, uh, the sales manager needs to have, you know, people who are uh, selling that have a learning mindset to, to pick up those new products. But as the the, the performance orientation, uh, that's an important mindset as well, isn't it? Yeah, no, it it definitely is. And and so, I mean, some interesting things as you as you develop a team, it's really a portfolio of, of people, right? It yeah. it sort of gives you some indication of how you might have them allocate their time. We talked to plenty of really um, what I would describe as a star performing rep with the average portfolio who basically says when it comes to new products, I'll just wait a year. Oh, <laughs> wow. So they have this mindset. I need to make my numbers. They're really good at making my numbers. Um, when I did incentive comp at Xerox, we'd have people, let's say that spent, uh, or that for 29 out of 30 years would have made President's Club level performance. I mean, these people that are people you could not stop if you wanted to. Right. Well, that person might say, yeah, I'll wait till the, till somebody else learns how to sell that product because I'm going to make my number this year. Let them invest the time. And then once they learn it, I'll adopt all those practices. Uh-huh. 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 Well, tell us a little bit about how you conducted the research. What was how how did you go about? You obviously, you had to find companies with new to the world products and various different things. But how, how tell us a little bit about the the process that you did for the research. We we did a whole bunch of things. This this project took a lot longer to complete than uh, either of us thought when when we started <laughs> it. Um, it's probably about five years. Of, wow. Uh, and then, um, you know, not all the time, obviously, but, but a fair, fair amount of time. Um, and we did a lot of one-on-one interviews. We did it with sales managers and salespeople. Um, and we also did it with buyers. Okay. Uh, we conducted a couple surveys with, um, with sales reps to sort of get at, you know, how does your time allocation change? How does your process change? And we did a couple of studies with sales forces at a sales force level where we um, did some profiling of the reps within the company, you know, okay. did competency assessments within the company, mm-hmm. and then also had customers do a competency assessment of the reps. So we had these pairs of, of people, and that led to some really interesting findings. Wow. Well, can you talk more about that? I've, I don't think I've ever heard of a situation where you've had customers uh, provide uh, an, an analysis or an assessment of an individual sales rep where you yeah. also had their, their own, the sales rep's own individual assessment of themselves. How did that go? And, and well, how did it work? I think that's fascinating. Yeah. So it was, it was really fascinating and very telling um, uh, about behavior, I think in the accounts. Um, so the, what we did essentially was had people ask questions or answer questions about themselves to to get insights into their mindset. Are they more performance oriented or learning oriented? Okay. Um, are they open to change? Are they do they have knowledge of the product? Are they adaptable? Uh, do they have market knowledge? These these sorts of characteristics. 
And um, then we'd ask the customer, like, how do you see the salesperson on along these dimensions? And this is this is what's fascinating. I think it it gives you a real it gave us a very clear insight into how companies behave as well. Um, so the only dimension which the salesperson's perceptions of themselves and the customer's perceptions really matched was on product knowledge. So when you ask those two groups, like, does the rep have a lot of product knowledge? The answer to that question pretty was pretty close. It's like, yeah, they have lots of product knowledge, which is, you know, at some level, that's good because that's what companies train. They give product training. That's it. Right. Right. When you had then compared, like, do they have a learning mindset or a performance mindset or do they have um, are they adaptable? And that's the one that struck us the most. Right. This this was totally fascinating to us. When you ask the rep if they thought they were adaptable, um, they thought many of them thought, yeah, I'm pretty adaptable. I can I understand uh, how things change and I can go with it. And uh, when you ask the customer, they said, this is the least adaptable person on earth. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No way. It was, it was awesome, right? Blind um, spot bias. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it was really, it was great. Um, wow. And, and, and so it's just sort of gives you the sense of, uh, as we were doing the research, like really the things that companies should be training has a lot more to do with uh, behavior or mindsets of the rep, the emotions of the rep, than actually the product knowledge itself. Uh, product knowledge is not the problem in these situations. In fact, the, the best reps uh, think about this very, very differently, you know, are worried about different things. Best managers uh, sort of help the reps in different ways. I could talk a little bit about that too. Yeah. yeah, go go on that. Uh, expand upon that. How how to train and and where the focus should be. Right. Yeah. So so one company that we worked with and and talked to a, a senior manager there um, is in the digital advertising space, digital media space, and uh, he talked about uh, some of the struggles he was having getting their reps to sell into this new marketplace. It was a, it was an awesome conversation, um, in part because the initial training that they had done for the reps was like every other company, and basically they gave them specific product knowledge about these uh, these this digital content that they're trying to sell, and um, the the training wasn't effective at all. Um, and and when he stepped back and looked at the problem, and interviewed the reps, what he realized was that the reps actually in this situation. We're having a really hard time having any conversations with the customer at all. They didn't want to put themselves out there. They basically didn't want to look dumb, right? Uh, you know, right. Customer. Save face. Uh, yeah. And so they stick to what they knew, which is the product itself, not talk about market trends, not um, – and if they could avoid the discussion, they would. they just sell the old product. And so then his solution to the problem was, was different. It was it was very unique. One of the things that he had his reps do was do journaling, you know, to talk about what their fears were in front of the customer, you know, to 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 sort of say, well, just talk through what's going to happen, you know, right there. 
Um, and uh, another thing that they asked the, the reps to do was to say, write down what your job is and what your job isn't, which is just a way of making the problem smaller, right? It's to manage your emotions, not manage the, the sale. And so then the second wave of training had things also that were knowledge-based, but it was more market-focused. This is how the market's changing. This is how you can make yourself appear as a, a well, not appear, but actually be a leader, a thought leader in the space. But then here are other things that you need to do to control your emotions through the sale. And that's actually the stuff that worked. And, and yeah. to me, that was just fascinating. Like I was not... I, I'd say if I had one thing that I took away from this experience of doing the research was um, I was not prepared for how much uh, therapy people had to go through, <laughs> you know, like the emotional side of it. I, I don't know. I didn't expect that uh, well, before we started. It sounds like there's, there was this component of fear that, that the sales reps had, again, around their self-identity and, and the, that looking bad in front of a client or not knowing what they needed to know. And so that journaling exercise and other, th as you said, you know, identifying what they, their role is and what their role isn't is really just looking at. So here are the pieces that you need to need to understand. And, and here's some things it's okay not to understand and just get through that and, and help them overcome some of that fear and, and that uh, saving face kind of component. So yeah, I, th I think that's exactly, it's exactly right. It's, a, it's overcoming fear. Yeah. So what, so Tom, I, this is, uh, I just want to clarify, make sure that I'm understanding that, that uh, managing the emotions of the sales reps uh, came through sort of therapeutic methods. Is that, is, is that a fair summary? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't want to <laughs> go that, you know, like I, I, I use that in a lay person sort of sense, but yeah, I mean, that's how, that's how I took it. And I think anything that people do that's new, like when, you know, with my job as a, as a business school faculty, when we bring new people into the school, a lot of what your job is, is to help them cope is just help them make sense of what's happening, you know, <laughs> make it to make the problem seem smaller. Um, and you saw a lot of that in this environment. It's like anyone who's doing something new has this. It's obvious in retrospect, but it's, <laughs> It, you know, like, but it's clearly not obvious to a lot of companies because they provide none of the support and resource to their to their salespeople. Yeah, it's all it's always about learn, learn, learn the product feature, you know, top to bottom, all the features, be able to spew off all of the, you know, the, the bits and bytes and, and all the specifics and how it compares to the competition. And then you're on your own. Then you're done. Right. Yeah. And you're obviously not done. Well, you. You talked about it earlier about change management, right? And and being able to identify, you know, salespeople have to go through that themselves. They have to be, they have to change how they're approaching some of this stuff. And that's not always easy. And so you have to, you have to address that as an organization and really think about what is going to be to your point. You know, we can train them on the product, we can train them on the features but we have to also get them to be able to say, hey, yes, I need to change my behaviors. And how do I go about doing that effectively? And so it's it's, it's, it's retrospectively, you go, duh, but, <laughs> but in the heat of the moment. So, well, and I think it's it's hard and I'm not I don't want to diminish the problem in a, in a sales force, because as we talked about earlier, 
you know, it is one part of the organization. It's very numbers driven and, and failure is not really an option. But when you're doing new things, you have to celebrate failure in a way. And so there's that contradiction, I think, that makes this a, a harder problem to deal with in a sales organization than it is in other parts of the organization. Yeah. Yeah. In the article, you guys talk about uh, the benefits of strategic account management. Can you talk a little bit about some of what you learned about that and, and how that plays into selling new products? Yeah, I, I mean, there's lots of benefits of strategic account management. And if I were to think about, um, you know, how its applications changed over the last 25 years, if I were to describe the types of programs you'd see 25 years ago, they're much more geared towards cost reduction. And now it's, it's geared much more towards um, selling of innovation, both okay. creating of innovation and selling uh, of, of innovation. So in the article, we talk really about the sales side. And um, let's go back to the challenge. One of the challenges in selling a new, new product is that you're asking the customer to make changes. What that means at the customer site is that people have entrenched motivations. They've built up an empire. They uh, want to continue to grow their engineering group, that, that sort of thing. They may not have incentive at the customer site to talk to one another. So the really effective um, strategic account management programs that, that we saw sort of cut across business divisions, both at the customer site and at uh, the seller site. And uh, they would make connections. They built this great network. And another thing, because they had a network that they, that they could use um, from that, is that they could anticipate problems. They could anticipate where power dynamics might be changing at the customer site, and they get out of, in front of that. If you had product line reps only, they're in a much smaller world. They don't know about those connections at the customer site. They can't anticipate that stuff. And right. so they have to start you know, developing those to even get started in this new product. You almost, it's, it's a, just making the task a lot um, a lot harder. The other, the other real advantage of strategic account management, although e even this is amusing in some ways, is that strategic account managers typically have a longer term focus than an ordinary rep. So if ordinary reps are, are worried about, you know, quarter to quarter, strategic account managers might have multi-year planning horizons um, that, that they look up, look over. And so they have less of a need, let's say, of making this quarter's numbers. Um, we did a different set of, of research around earnings management and how companies, uh, companies manage earnings. Um, when you looked at the pressure that companies have put on strategic account managers relative to the normal sales force, to make quarterly numbers, it was much less. It was actually the one part of the sales force that they wouldn't uh, jerk expenses away from. Um, so that long-term mindset actually is something that's really helpful in selling new, new products. So, um, so there's lots of reasons why that part of the organization is effective, not only on the product development side, but also on the, on the sales side in, in getting new things adopted. 
Well, I, I, I'm curious about, uh, you know, we get to talk to a bunch of, uh, we get to talk to academics, people who have spent most of their careers uh, in academia and researching. We spend a lot of time in our, our podcast talking to practitioners, and we, we love that as well. You cross both, you, you've been at, you were at Xerox, and uh, now you're in academia. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your personal journey to go from uh, from someone who's practicing and you know working on strategic sales incentives uh, to uh, to the work of studying them and getting your PhD and that sort of thing. Yeah, so um, I, I do have an interesting career. I, I feel like I've lucked out in many ways. Um, so when I was, I always knew that I wanted to teach. My dad uh, taught at a community college and and was the academic dean there. My uncles were all in big business. Uh, you know, board board level people um, who had terrific careers there, and this is, I guess, my way of combining those two things. Um, <laughs> that sounds good. Your family history led you to where you are. Right, that's right. Uh, it's my way of making sense of the world. Um, but I I spent some time at Xerox. I actually loved my my job there. I worked for great people who let me do, um, gave me a lot of autonomy and do interesting work. My last job, um, I ran, um, or I was responsible for the U.S. direct incentive strategy for U.S. direct sales force. So we spent like $140 million on just incentives for about 4,000 salespeople. Um, and so we developed these compensation plans. We would um, support them through the year. You got very good at sort of explaining the company's strategy because pay focuses the mind and people often were not happy with us. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, so so you, you got good at sort of understanding why the company was doing what it was doing. And your one safe haven in life was to um, explain how the strategy made the customers' lives better. And uh, reps were never happy with you if they if they lost pay, but they could understand why you were doing something and the noise would be bearable if, if you could do that. And I got to be like about 30 and um, I realized if I didn't leave, you know, Xerox then I would never leave because the money was good. They're offering me uh, a great opportunities for advancement. Um, but I really wanted to teach and, and do research. So I left, I did a PhD at Yale and then I was at Harvard for eight or nine years, and, and now I'm at the Darden School. So I've really uh, been lucky to be part of some really great organizations, and I've learned a ton along the way. So, so, so Tom, what are some of the, the fun or interesting topics that you're looking at now? What research are you uh, doing that you're just really excited about uh, where it's going and, and various different things? So we have a paper uh, coming out soon about managing uh, low-performing salespeople and and um, and some of the challenges associated with with that. We allude to some of that research actually in our old uh, old motiva sales motivation article. Right. Uh, so that's that's something that's that's interesting. Um, I've and been, it's not just the the GE model of, of lopping off that bottom ten yeah, percent, right. and that's not uh... actually this particular program uh, did have an element of that in it. So it's it's called um, I forget what we call the paper finally, but but I, I 
I think it's called the bench effect or something okay. like that. But the basic idea, uh, we did a field experiment with a study. And basically, this company had never laid anyone off in ages. Right? Oh, my gosh. Which is unusual in sales. But yeah. they'd have uh, stories about how the reps would help each other. And it was, it was countercultural to, to lay people off. And then a new sales manager came in and said, we would like to run a program to, that will get rid of some of the dead work, as, as he described it. And um, they put in a program where basically they had, they'd hire a trainee into the company and put them in a district. And then they ran a, ran a program where if you were the lowest performing rep and you missed your quota, then you, within a sales team, you would be out and this new person would come in and take your job, which is very harsh. Yeah, um, just, it's you know, extremely harsh. Wow. And, that, and I should be clear, I'm not recommending the companies. <laughs> okay, okay, good to know. Yeah. Uh, but, but what you saw was like, uh, because they didn't have much performance management at the company before this time, you saw an immediate spike in performance, 5% spike basically in sales. And it maintained wow. throughout the year. So it wasn't like people were shifting business across time periods. It wasn't that people didn't know how to do their job. There's basically some shirking that, that went on. Um, and they ran the program for a, a year. And then um, they only ran it at part of the company, let's say a third of the, the territories. And, and the other third or the other two thirds they left alone. Um, and they stopped to see what happened you know, tens of millions of dollars basically to the good they made with this, with this program. And the interesting thing is um, the CEO and this, the, the vice president had a chat after that year and said, okay, we're not going to roll this out to the other territories. You know, this isn't, uh, this is so countercultural to who we are is I don't like how it's going to change the company. Um, yeah. So they found other ways to, to manage performance. But it's really, it's to me, this study is interesting in, in a number of ways. One is I do believe that you have to have practices in place to manage low performers. And I can talk a little bit more of, of, about that as well, but it also has to fit within the culture of your firm. Um, you know, if you talk to some of the high performers at that firm that were in those territories, they were almost like, thank God somebody's doing something about this. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. right. Um, but it still is very harsh, um, uh, a harsh practice. Um, so, so finding ways though, that, you know, get people out of the business that shouldn't be there really don't belong in sales, but also as respectful of the culture is, is, is critical. Right. And, you know, so if I, if I can just say one other thing about performance management and what I've seen with, with, with top sales managers is that the really good sales managers move that whole performance curve up. You know, it's not just that they focus on the low end and they're good with the laggards or they're not just that they focus on the stars and they're good with the stars. They get everybody to to levels of higher performance. Um, so it's it's uh, it's interesting. Companies go through their challenges. You know, every company has a different challenge. So some targeted perform programs are important to run. Um, at this company, they probably did need something at the, at the lower end, but the really good managers actually are ones that can, can relate to everyone. And, All right. Well, and, 
Well, what, what tips would you share with a sales manager who, who happens to be listening about how to deal with their, their uh, bottom performers? Yeah, so the behavior's totally different in, uh, between the laggards and the stars. And uh, the techniques you use to motivate them should be very different. There's a great parallel I can make uh, to educational testing. Um, so stars... Basically, no matter what you do, are going to succeed at the end of the year. They find yeah. a way, right? right? So they don't need a lot of direction uh, to do that. In fact, the best salespeople that I've seen, if you ask them, you know, how you're planning out, they'll have a, let's say, an annual outlook, and they'll say, well, in March this term lease is coming up, so I need to be at this account. In September this this opportunity is going to happen. So I need to be at this account. They sort of plan out their whole year and they'll even start from president's club level performance and then work backwards. Well, what do I have to do to achieve it? And like I said, when I was at Xerox, we had a market that grew at 5%. Uh, I used to set president's club level targets and in general, they were about 160% of plan. Um, So you get people that would like knock it out of the park every, they're amazing people, you know, every it was incredible performance. Um, so these are the planners, right? With laggards, they behave totally differently. And basically, they have a much shorter term focus. They only react to what's in front of them at the time. There's no real strategic plan. And so then you need different interventions to move them up the curve. So one of we have a paper, uh, I had a paper with Doug Chung and, and Casey Deer a while back. And one of the things that we showed is if you put in quarterly bonuses, the people who respond to that sort of of incentive are the laggards. And basically what they're doing is that, okay, I'll plan a quarter out. (laughs) I can make the quarterly targets. And if I get them to do that, then they train themselves to be in the game at the end of the year. And so if you don't have these sort of interim incentives, and it doesn't have to be incentives. It could be any intervention that's sort of helping people to – keep on focus um what happens is by june they're so far out of the game that there's no way in hell that they're going to make their target and it's right? easy for them to drop out at that point it's it, it hit the eject yeah. button yeah it's exactly right and and so we see the same phenomena in education as well whereas if you have an uh, a, a year-long comprehensive exam as you know like in in great britain they often have exams like yeah. like this yeah for people that are star students, this is no problem because all throughout the year, they keep right on track. They're learning along as they could. They're self-motivated. They develop a strategy. Great. Works for them just fine. If you take uh, people at risk, maybe people who, you know, first generation um, go to college types uh, or, or families, let's say, that have never been to college. Yeah. This system doesn't work as well for them. You know, they have to train themselves how to um, how how to study, and so then actually weekly interventions where you put in quizzes or you have you know small tests at a much more frequent cadence trains people how to study. Yeah. And so those interventions actually are very effective for your low performing types of students. You know, same phenomena. It just gets back to orientation towards. Uh, long-term planning um, and, and long-term thinking. Yeah, you can only pull so many all-nighters in a row before you actually can. 
Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Or or not. <laughs> or, or not, as we know, right? Yeah. As the case may be. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I was wondering if we could uh, talk a little bit about music. Tom. Yeah, sure. You know, uh, we have a, a couple minutes left here. And uh, don't grimace, Kurt. I, this is, this is uh, Tim's section, usually. And he always brings in a musical, which is really fun. But go well, for it, Well, some, sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> but... Uh, but you know, we uh, Tom, when we were getting ready for this, you said, you know, I'm game for talking about music. So, uh, so tell me a little bit about your interest in in music. Are you a big listener? Are you a player? Do you you know gig on the weekends? I mean, how you know where are you on the on the scale of musical interest? Yeah, I I love music. Um, I can't I cannot say that I'm a gigger on the weekends. I wish I were. I played guitar when I was younger, but um, I don't have that ability. Fortunately, my kids seem to, um, but, but um, I love to listen to my daughter play piano. I think it's great. I, oh, I like, nice. yeah. So, so for um, interests, I'd say I have very eclectic interests. Um, I really, I love modern classical music, like Philip Glass. I was listening to that just before we started talking. Um, yeah. I love uh, jazz, like real modern jazz, like uh, the, well, I guess it's not modern anymore. <laughs> but John Laurie and the and the Lounge Lizards, I love that. Love that music. And I'm probably listening to a lot of um, bluegrass and country music now. Besides, it, well, and, and Kurt Vile too. So it's real. Uh, I like music across the whole the whole spectrum of thing. What what kind of bluegrass are you listening to? Is, is uh, this is this where uh, you know, like uh, Yo-Yo Ma, you know, meets uh, you know, um, you know uh, Appalachian Spring with, uh, gosh, it was a Tim, uh, I can't remember his name, you know, but uh, you know, is that that kind of bluegrass, or like, are you really deep into you know, the old style Kentucky Appalachian stuff? Probably the more modern, uh, modern old stuff. So like Dave Rawlings and Gillian Welch, I think are fantastic. You know, I just, I love that music. It's so complex and, and interesting. Um, and, and the combination of the two are just between the voice and the, and the guitar are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's interesting. Which I think kind of blends into Americana, you know, I mean, Dave Rawlings and Gillian Welch are certainly, leaving the the strict confines of bluegrass behind and and getting into the bending of uh, storytelling and gospel and all kinds of things that are influencing their work so yeah that, i think that's probably even a better description of it so uh what's on your playlist right now what what do you what you you said you were listening to philip glass before we got together uh, what else will you listen to today uh oh, that's a good that's a good question i the last like three weeks i've been listening to Kurt Vile. Um, so I'll probably listen to a little bit of that later, later this afternoon. Um, and Lord knows what else I tend to, I tend to become obsessive about things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think basically that's how anyone with a PhD works. You know, your mind just gets going on something. You're like, yeah, I've just got to know more about that thing. Um, and you just think more and more, uh, about it so um i would agree yeah. with that yes it is there's it's something good. wrong with you if you get a phd <laughs> <laughs> i knew it i knew 
Thank you so much. I knew there was something wrong with Kurt. It's the damn PhD. <laughs> that's not the only thing that's wrong with me. So let's just make sure we got that straight. Well, Tom, this has been really good. We, 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 we do want to leave with just if there were three tips for our listeners and, and whether they be in sales or sales management or just people in general, um, you know, what, what would be two or three tips that you would leave them with um, just so that they can be better at work or better in their life, whatever that would be? Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, well, one thing I'd say, I, I'd say this, this is certainly with, with sales um, is that a lot of people, when they think about selling, think it's a natural gift. And I, I really do not have that perspective at all. I tend to be amazed actually at the variety of people who are successful in selling. Um, and it, you know, there's introverts, there's extroverts. Um, it's a really broad field. So there's lots of different places where people can be successful I think having a learning mindset and being um, open to ideas and continuing to learn, like that's something that's inherent to everyone who's who's successful. And um, you know, I've seen companies that have, when they've made big transitions, the ones that sort of give their reps these learning opportunities do the best. Um, I, I've I've seen that over over and over again. Um, I'd say one of the things I think that relates to people in general that I probably appreciate more as I get older is, um, how little I can read somebody else's mind. Uh, <laughs> so, so with teeth, with teaching, actually, I think it's really taught me, taught me this, if I've learned anything is just to be, uh, more maybe present or take people people at face value and make no assumptions about what their motives are. There's just right. lots of things that are going on with them. Um, you know, and I think when I was young and I was teaching, I, I was so worried about what it said about me. And now you'd never get me to say that. I'm not sure I could even recognize that myself. Um, but I got w much better at the job when I stopped worrying about that part and could figure out what's going on in a student's head. Right. And, you know, just sort of having no value judgment uh, about it. They have their own motivations. Students do. Customers do. And your job is to not to really have an opinion about that. It's just to help them along. Um, that's something I appreciate more as I get older. I think it's really useful. Um, good managers do this. Good teachers do this. Good salespeople do this. Sort of have an ability to to see where people are and help them get to the next, the next level. Good. That's, that's terrific. <laughs> that's, 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 that's great stuff to end on. Yeah. I always, I uh, couldn't agree with you more in thinking about, you know, we, we tend to oftentimes make assumptions about other people's motives. And most of the time those are based on what's going on in our own head, as opposed to what is always what's going on in their head. And so the ability to hold back from that and 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 suspend that judgment for a you know a bit, I think, is a very powerful tool. That if more people were able to do that, uh, they'd they'd have a much more uh, a less stressful life, um, but be just better results as a, as a as a result of doing that. So, so with that, Tom, 
thank you so much for being on Behavioral Grooves. We really do appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kurt and Tim. I, I really enjoyed this a lot. Uh, thanks for asking me on it. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavior Groups interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our learning mindset brains. I love that. Love what? Learning mindset brains. Oh, there you go. Get it on, dude. I'm learning. (laughs) I learn every time I interact with you, Tim. Why do I, I, for some reason, I'm just feeling some sense of facetiousness in that. <laughs> I, I, there might be a little bit of facetiousness there, but for the most part, I learn when I am with you. It's one of the things that I love about, you know, this, spending yeah. time on this and just other times with you. So. Well, I, and, and just in the Mutual Admiration Society... I feel the same way. <laughs> I you, do. Didn't have, you, you, you didn't have to say that. This wasn't one of those plugs. To, no, but it's know. reciprocity, so we got to keep it going. <laughs> okay, let's get back to Tom. What What did you come away with from our discussion with Tom? What What really struck you? It, well, the idea of a learning mindset and how important that is, particularly in new sales uh, and for those sales um, reps that that have it or don't have it. Yeah, I think that was insightful. It's it's a thing that you probably could guess about intuitively and just from a gut reaction, but the fact that, hey, reps with a learning mindset perform better in new sales sales um, than, than people who have a performance mindset. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, Tom talked about the stars and how you know, they start the year with a plan and, and they, they kind of map out the, the major milestones that they're going to be working through. Um, and, and what seems to be implied in that is they're going to roll with the punches after they have this plan in place. And, mm-hmm. and it, doesn't, it doesn't say that that learning mindset can't be acquired, right? It, it's not only naturally and intuitive, is it? I mean, isn't, isn't a learning mindset something that that you could also say, okay, I want to have a learning mindset. I want to develop it. I, I think so. I want now, to have that curiosity. So I was I was thinking about this in comparison to Carol Dweck's growth mindset. Yeah. You know, Carol, Carol Dweck talks about having a growth mindset. Started with work on kids where they were looking at, you know, kids with what they, she called a fixed mindset, basically saying, Hey, I'm as intelligent or as smart as I'm I'm going to be, and that's naturally born into me. It's my genetics. Um, or you have a growth mindset, which means my intelligence, my knowledge is going to be able to grow. I just need to work at it in various different things. And they did some really interesting work with kids in just how a they uh, recognize those kids' successes. So if you have a child and they come home with an A on their report card. Do you as a parent say, wow, that's great, you're so smart? Or do you say, wow, that's so great, you must have worked really hard at this? That simple change in dialogue around that helped those kids who heard the, wow, you worked at it really hard to, to develop this growth mindset, to have this idea that it's the work that I put in that got me the A, not the natural inclination of my brain that I'm so smart. And wow, that then impacts me. And so that changed things. There's a lot of other really cool stuff on that. Uh, However, I think with the learning mindset, I would assume, I don't know this, but I would assume that there's probably a similar way of approaching it so that you could learn it, that you can 
take that approach of saying, I want to learn about this, that I need to understand before I start trying to sell. Is um, Here's a question for you. Do you think that there's some um, similarity between uh, Carol Dweck's work and the way she talks about uh, a learning mindset versus a fixed mindset and the way Annie Duke talks about um, uh, focusing on the process rather than just resulting? You know, to say... You know, because uh, the, there's a big difference between saying I used a really good process and I and still the results I got were not so good. So uh, versus just focusing completely on oh the results I got were good so I must be good. Yes, I think that's uh, see it's I learned something. It's or, or at least <laughs> it intrigues me about this conversation. I had never put those two together, but there's a component of that. That I think is is spot on. I think that this element of thinking through the process for how we get to the results is similar to what a growth mindset is. Because a growth mindset isn't saying you have a, a naturally inclination to this is how it's going to be and the results are going to be the results. It is what's the process you're using to get to those results. And you can always improve that process. Yeah. So I think that yeah. I think there's something there. That's interesting. Thank you, Tim. Well, maybe we'll, we'll, <laughs> it might be really blah blah blah. Uh, something that really struck me was, which is something that I just love in life, is being becoming aware of biases. And in the research, uh, Tom discovered that the customers perceived um, reps very differently than reps perceived themselves. Mm. Sounding to me like there's big, you know, blind spots on the reps part. You know, classic definition of biases, right? Yeah, that the reps are not really clued into how they are coming off when it comes to openness and flexibility and things like that. The customers see them very differently, and because um, I, I, I like becoming aware of this in my own life, right? Uh, I don't know well, how much it helps, and there's a lot. <laughs> there's a we lot. do have a lot. Both of us have a lot. So, uh, And I don't know how much, uh, exactly how much, I don't have a measure for it, but I think it's important for us to become aware of these blind spots. And sales managers could, could then actually use this in helping develop the reps. Yeah. It looks like there's a blind spot here. Look, you know, Your customers all say this about you, you think this this other thing about you. Let's try and remedy that. Well, just the conversation that Tom had about, you know, wow, it's really easy to get meetings up at the beginning when you have a new product. <laughs> right, right. And now on sales reps that are all excited about that. Building but, up their confidence. Right. But yeah. then when it comes to actually selling something from them, because those people were taking those meetings just to find out more information, because we are naturally curious for the most part, yeah. right? And well, so, and they, that fear of missing out. Yeah. You know, the the customers don't want to say, well, I've got something new, and say, no, 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 I don't want to hear about something new. Right. You Tell know, me the same stuff you've told me 10 times. <laughs> yeah. I want to hear that. Right. Well, we've seen, you and I have been around sales reps enough and sales managers uh, enough to know that that is, that's a big problem. Right? Well, I think it's a big, from a sales manager perspective, that focus on the, what are you doing this quarter, this month, whatever your sales reporting period is, is a big barrier, particularly if you go back and you look at this learning mindset being one of the key components of this. That takes time up front to really work through 
ask those questions, not getting into that performance mode of asking for the sale or even trying to pitch the sale at that point. And I think that's a different mindset that managers need to take and might be a bias that they haven't. And I don't necessarily blame that frontline manager. I think that's driven by expectations up the line that it just trickles down. Um, Yeah. And those, those components. But how can you... So what do you think? Is there a way that organizations can maybe uh, help, that, uh, by, help that situation? In other words, making the learning mindset more uh, likely to happen in the field by maybe backing off on some of their goals in that first quarter? Well... Um- Maybe one of the one of the ways to do that is for the leadership to be more open, adaptable, and flexible. Okay. As opposed to being rigid and so um, unflinchingly uh, compelled to go after the numbers, but to say, guess what? We've got we've got some things happening here. We're introducing a new product. We're actually going to take time to make sure that the reps are comfortable, not only with the product knowledge, but in how they're going to investigate each of their customers. What are the questions that they're going to ask? Help them, uh, and we're going to help the organization deal with the changes so that the reps don't have to be the change agents. Well, is that then a component of the training that goes into this? Yes. And so focusing that training on some different things, not just the products and features and how it compares to your competitor, yeah. right? So looking at how do you go in and find out this information? What are some probing questions that you can ask? The the, the hard part, I think, and, and this... Again, I'm not necessarily the expert in this, but the hard part, I think, from a sales perspective is that sales in that first year, that first six months, that first quarter have a strong residual impact on the success of that product in the long term, at least in pharmaceutical. I know that for a fact that, look, if you can get a great start within those first six months, the product is much more likely to be successful in the wrong, long run. Yeah, And so it's hard to say delay those sales because you're getting this, this inquiry. So I'm wondering, again, from a timing perspective, can you have those reps be going in in, in advance of the uh, product being released? And in, in pharmaceuticals, that's, they're often aware of that. You know, they, they they, there's, a, there's a queue with now, uh, FDA approval and things like that. Right. Now, with, with that, there's also rules and regulations yeah. about what, what you they can, can talk about and, and, what you can't. and what you can't. Yeah. But I think in just general sales, I think often you know, companies wait until the product is out yeah. to yeah. Or, or, or right before that and maybe moving some of that training up, moving some of the time allocation from obviously you still need to sell the old products or the products, the existing products, but maybe taking a time and, and, and promoting that time to your reps to say, let's take some additional moments here in advance of the product coming out to, to kind of understand the customer and what their needs are as, as it relates to what this new product is going to be able to do for them. As well as to prepare the organization for what it's going to be like when that new product comes comes on the market. Mm-hmm. What are the accounting implications? What are the uh, the customer service and support uh, implications? Um, you know, I, I spent a bunch of years in product um, management, and when new products were introduced, 
you know, lots of sales reps were excited. But one of the things that, that Tom said that really struck me was that let the strategic account teams be the leaders in the, in the, uh, in the release of the new products. Yeah. Because they have a broader view. And I think that, that that's something that I saw over and over again is that, that sometimes the most successful releases of new products were when a, a big client with a strategic account team was able to put it to use. And they were able to, the strategic, strategic account team was successful at doing that because of their long-term perspective. They had a deeper understanding of the client and they had this broader view of how it fit into the organization. Do you think that goals need to be adjusted in a new product given this information? Again, um, or just the timing of those goals. Maybe the overall goal component that we have is the same, but how those goals, you know, how those sales come in, is there a component there that needs yeah, to be well, talked about? I mean, I've never never seen a, a, a sales manager uh, underestimate where, you know, uh, their sales forecast. So, so I think that they do a really good job of setting aggressive goals that are rarely achieved. Mm. Uh, and... Uh, and one, we, we could have a whole discussion around, I've around had, that. I, I, I will take that back. I, I've seen many, actually, uh, new product launches where they have just blown through the goals. They've blown through the expectations. Wow. Because they, it, it's a new product. The, and, and they really did ratchet down the their expectations? No, I think what they they just didn't expect that the product would be as successful oh. as it was. And so uh, there are many times, and again, I, I've done a lot of work with pharmaceutical in, in those instances where reps love that because that's where they're getting these massive payouts because across the board, everybody is performing at 110 115, 150% yeah. of goal. Yeah. Um, and then they'll ratchet those goals down the next semester, quarter, or year, whatever their their goal allocation component is on. So. Yeah, interesting. So what else? Uh, the emotional side. The yeah. whole idea that, you know, I, uh, for, for fear of sounding like, uh, you know, focusing on the fluff, I think that it is an interesting observation that Tom makes about how important the emotional side of being a sales rep plays into the performance, their performance that when they're trying to save face, when they're, when they, when they misstate or misstep and then they're trying to backtrack and um, that, that, that impacts and impedes their performance. So the fear factor is part of that. Yeah. The, The element of failure. I think again, salespeople have such a, specific, most salespeople have a very clear measure uh, that they get rated on, which is their sales performance. Right. And their feeling of worth can sometimes be tied up in how well or not well that they are doing on that. And the emotional response is really strong. And the component of saying, particularly in a new product, you might be a great performer on the existing products, but all of a sudden in a new product launch and your sales numbers are at the bottom of the organization versus being at the top, 
that can have a significant impact. Yeah. And while it's easy for sales managers, which I've heard over and over again, that, you know, that, that uh, we're going to push them, we're going to have a stack ranking and we're going to, we're going to, you know, list everybody out and we're going to, we're going to drive the, everybody to, to be the top performers because of, uh, of this fear factor. Fear is not always a great motivator, especially in the long term. Right. You know, I, that's a very good point. And, and to that, while there are some benefits of that, there's also a lot of down um, turns or down factors that you could have, right? Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, I, I have a, a musical question for you, Kurt. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> that. You're you're putting the sound effects in before I can even <laughs> add them. <laughs> Uh, I thought that our, our musical conversation with Tom was really fun. Yeah. Uh, but he brought up Kurt Weil and uh, Kurt Weil. Good name. Yeah, exactly. And At least sp- the first name. And yeah. spelled correctly, as you might say. I would say that, yes. <laughs> well, Kurt Weil was a composer. Uh, he was a musical composer that worked mostly, didn't really work in contemporary or modern songs as much as he worked in like musicals and a variety of different things in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, He wrote Mac the Knife from Mac the Knife from the Three Penny Opera. Uh, now it was originally written in German. Of course, the the lyrics were from Bertolt Brecht, um, which you probably already knew. But <laughs> as as I glare at, or stare at you with this glazed over eyes, going never heard. Of but it's in my life. it's it's such an iconic. Uh, song to uh, especially people in in, uh, in you know in the U.S. Yeah, they think about Bobby Darin or Ella Fitzgerald did these great covers of it, but it reminded me of show music. And I wanted to ask you about are there are there operas or uh, or musicals that that you that you've really gotten a lot of enjoyment out of? So so operas not so much. Musicals, yes. Okay. And I think there's a there's a couple. We've talked about Hamilton before, yeah. and how my kids have just embraced Hamilton. I mean, they can sing pretty much every song without missing a beat, wow. without missing a wow. lyric. Uh, I love that. Like we're in the car, and they will just start singing it, and. My son will go to my daughter, all right, you got the Hamilton part, I'm taking the the Burr part, I'm going to do Lafayette, and you can do, you know, uh, I can't, now I'm drawing a blank on the others. But anyway, the fact is, is that is such a well-done musical, both from a musical perspective, the story perspective, uh, and we got to see it, and so the acting yeah. is just fantastic. Well, and they too. will probably carry those lyrics and those stories with them for the rest of their life. They will, and and I've said this before, I love it because it it all of a sudden sparked an interest in American history of the you know 1776 and everything right. that happened around that, the yeah. beginning of our country, uh, and so that was it was great, and I love that part. So, so that was a very similar experience for me when Jesus Christ Superstar came out, which technically is a rock opera. Te- yes, technically. there you go. Okay, technically it is. Yeah. How did that get you into history of the United States? No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't connecting to the history of the oh, United States. I, I, I'm sorry. I was connecting to way to the way your children are uh, are swapping parts, and uh, that it's always available to them. Because I had this with a couple of my buddies. Yeah. That we would we would do this uh, the same thing with Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. But there's other musicals that, that well, you like, right? On that, I will tell you, my wife 
it talks about well, Greece was hers. You know? Okay, and exactly. So, yeah, no, yeah. That, that's a different thing. I think there's other, like you talk about rock opera, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so this actually I don't think ever was a rock opera, but Tommy from The Who, right? Pretty, pretty darn close to a rock opera. I mean, I, yeah. what, what constitutes a rock opera? Why is it an opera? What, what, what? When there's no spoken word, that's really the that's really the 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 simplest definition. A musical has narrative and and dialogue and songs, whereas an opera doesn't have any any spoken word. So Hamilton actually is almost an opera, then. right? It really is. I mean, because the entire thing is, is sung. Is sung. Yeah. All right. Well, and then so so what about did. You listen to Tommy or the Who? Oh Was yeah, that Tommy. Oh yeah, and uh, Pink Floyd's uh, "The Wall." The Wall. Another brick in the wall. <laughs> yeah, I loved you, it. Get your English accent on. That. It's terrible, <laughs> isn't it? It's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. So now the Wall was one of my favorite um, of all time. Would you like to try your British accent on oh, that? Oh hell no. <laughs> hell no. Um, but yeah, I, and the movie was just fantastic. Um, yeah, did you like it? Did I, you think I yeah. did? It, I saw it in high school. It was one of those weird enough oh, things yeah. that just was out there. That I I think I went and saw it actually in the movie theaters more than once, which I didn't do. That wasn't wow. That wasn't me. Wow. So I went out and watched. Were it. you a big Pink Floyd? fan to start with i was a relatively big pink floyd fan oh. um but i think the the story behind the wall right that again it gets into psychology i mean if you think about the wall oh yeah, yeah. it is all about the self-psychology of a kid losing his father in the war and what that meant growing up and building this his relationship with his mother and building a wall around himself to protect him and not letting people in and how do you tear that wall down it's fantastic maybe that's what got me interested in psychology <laughs> which to me is all about Roger Waters dystopian view of the world well <laughs> you know? there you go i mean he definitely has that that uh, viewpoint yeah and so yeah it's i think that was that was great yeah i kind of i had a hard time with pink floyd after animals did you? Um, yeah. So early albums, man. I was. Well, just, that's your genre. Well, I mean, come on. It it's it just got weird with with animals. But so what? Okay. <laughs> come on. Okay. Money. I mean, is that after? No, Dark that, Side of the Moon is before animals. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so with that, uh, should we should we wrap up with a thank you to all of our listeners yeah well thank you listeners we appreciate you listening (laughs) hopefully you're still listening at this point and haven't just turned us off yeah hopefully not and uh so uh reach out let let us know uh, what you're thinking about let us know what's important to you and uh, if we can be of any help to you at t hulahan on twitter and at what motivates at twitter on twitter at twitter whatever it is something like that all right well with that keep keep on on grooving. grooving